Thank you so much, praise team, for that very inspiring time together this morning. So very grateful for your ministry to us. I want to ask you this morning, what historically significant person is this describing? He was despised by many of his countrymen and hated by his own father. One of his children committed suicide and two others drank themselves to death. He suffered from such dark depression that he refused to stay in a room with a balcony. He was afraid if he did that depression might overwhelm him and he would leap to his death. Can you believe that was Winston Churchill? Shocking, isn't it? He was thought to be the single most important person in the efforts to save Europe from Adolf Hitler. When I read that, I thought, you know, some of the people who have achieved the most have overcome the worst discouragement. Do you know one of Churchill's greatest speeches was given to a group of schoolboys in the middle of World War II in 1941? And you know the words in this great speech, never, 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 and nothing great or small, large or petty, never give in except to convictions of honor and good sense. Never yield to force, never yield to the apparently overwhelming might of the enemy. Jesus were, and his disciples were facing great discouragement at the Last Supper. The very words, Last Supper, indicate that this would be their final time with Jesus, and then he would go to the cross, and they would experience the cross. And during this final supper, Jesus told them some of the most shocking, unexpected things that they never thought they would hear. But what Jesus wanted to do is he wanted to encourage them to keep trusting him and to keep serving him. Despite the discouraging events, they would see with their own eyes, in the words of Churchill to those little boys, he wanted them to never, never give in. And so in John 14, Jesus made some amazing claims to encourage their faith and their ministry. These claims by Jesus are designed to do the same for us. No matter how dark things might appear in your life right now, Jesus will not fail you. He will not forsake you. I want us to turn today to John 14 again in our series on the Last Supper. And as we do, I want us to notice that in the section of verses that we have before us, we essentially have four amazing claims by the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, the first two amazing claims are designed to encourage our faith. The second set of amazing claims are designed to encourage our ministry. This morning, we will look at the first two sets of amazing claims, and then next week, we will look at the second set. Let's take a moment, bow together in prayer, 
and ask the Lord to meet us. Gracious Lord Jesus, we've been worshiping you. We believe in you. We know you are real and our faith is solid. But we know difficult times have come, are coming, that could shake us, maybe already have, to the very core. And we need something to be able to stand solidly and say, I know whom I have believed. And serving him is the most sensible thing that I could do. And so, Lord, speak to us today. Encourage us that we might grow strong in faith. For Jesus' sake, amen. Look with me, if you would, at verses 7 down to verse 9 of John 14. If you had known me, Jesus says, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and you have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the Father, and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long, and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen the Father, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Now, in these verses, Jesus makes this very, very amazing claim. He tells us that he is the supreme revelation of God. Now, Philip was a very practical man. You may remember at the feeding of the 5,000, he was the one who looked at the resources they had and calculated that no matter what Jesus had asked, it could not be done. And now he wanted to see evidence about what Jesus was talking about. Jesus had just said that he was going to the Father's house and he would return and he would take the disciples someday to that house in heaven. So Philip says, all right now, Lord, you've told us that. We cannot see that. So what I would like you to do is show us the Father." Let us see him in some way, and that will be satisfying to us. Now, Philip knew that no one can see God and live. And so what he was very clearly asking for was a theophany. A theophany is an appearance of God in some sort of a physical form. And so what Philip very likely wanted to see was a visible manifestation, something perhaps like Moses had seen. Or Jacob had seen in the ladder that reached up to heaven with the angels descending and ascending. Or like Isaiah had seen when he saw the great vision of God high and lifted up in the temple. And what Philip was saying was, Lord, if I can see with my own eyes what it is that you are talking about, then I will feel comfortable as we move forward into these discouraging things you have said will come. By the way, can I just stop here and say, don't we often feel this way? And don't we interact on a regular basis with people who feel this way? Especially when threatening or earth-shattering things happen, what we want is reassurance. 
We want to grasp onto something that is very, very tangible that will say to us what we believe in is actually really true. Uh, one Bible student in looking at this said, uh, Philip must have been from Missouri, the show me state. And many people are that way with their faith. How many people today think in their minds or have actually said, if God would just show himself to me, then I would be able to believe. I knew a Christian woman who was very, very dear to me, but she was very simple in her faith. When her father died, she was very unsettled about where he had gone. She was unsure of his salvation. As she was driving to the funeral service, she wanted to be certain that her dad had gone to heaven. And she said to me, all of a sudden as I was driving, I looked up into the clouds and I saw my father's face. She said, I got total peace. She knew, she said, that her dad was in heaven because God gave her that sign in the clouds. Do you see a danger in that? Do you see a danger in that? She was basing her faith upon her experience. She wanted to see or feel something that would reassure her. Brothers and sisters, experience is a very unreliable basis for faith. Because experience is often faulty and has often proved untrue. Do you know the whole Mormon church is based upon the unreliable experiences of Joseph Smith? Millions of people today, I think it's like now 10 million in the Mormon church, are led astray because they trust the unsubstantiated claims of Joseph Smith. In my former church, we had the privilege of receiving a number of ex-Mormons into our church. What a joy it was to baptize them as believers in Jesus Christ and to see them become members of our congregation. Uh, one of the mothers, her name was Connie, I'll never forget sitting in her house and hearing her say to me, one of the hardest things I've ever had to do in my life was to admit everything I had been taught about the Book of Mormon was untrue. What a struggle that was for her. Do you know another problem with experience is it has no firm content. See, experience can be interpreted however we want. Uh, seeing a, a face in the cloud, even if that did happen, it means uh, nothing one way or the other. My friend interpreted the meaning to be that her dad was in heaven because that's what she wanted to see. And that's the problem with experiences. Experiences can be easily interpreted the way that we want them to come out. 
But now let's come here. What do we have in Jesus? We have far more than an experience. We have a revelation. What Jesus is claiming in verse 7 is that he is the supreme, full revelation from God. Now, there are several possibilities for the translation of the first phrase in verse 7. I think the footnote in the English Standard Version or the footnote in the New International Version is a very helpful translation. This is what I believe Jesus is saying here. Let me read the footnote. To the disciples and to you and me, if you know me, you will know my Father also. Uh, The the little um, word if there is what is known as a first class condition. It is a simple statement of fact or reality. So Jesus is saying to the disciples, you really know me. They had experienced his words and his works and they put their faith in him. And because of that, they had really come to know the father as well. In fact, notice he said they would experience even more because he says in verse 7, from now on you do know him and have seen him. When Jesus went to the cross, they would see the glory of the Father in a way they had not seen, in which they would see the supreme manifestation of God's grace, mercy, love, and forgiveness in the cross of Jesus Christ. They would see God the Father in an even greater way than they had already seen them. Now you will notice three times in verses 7 and 9, Jesus uses the expression seen. Verse 7, from now on you do know him and have seen him. And then in verse 9, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. This word seen is very critical. It means to experience, or it carries the idea of to know by experience. So what it means is this, to know Jesus by experience is also to know God by experience. Through Jesus, we come to know God and come into communion with him. And what Jesus is saying to Philip and to us is this is far better than seeing something because this is seeing with spiritual insight And as a result of that insight, then trusting in the Savior that we have seen, coming to know Him and God the Father as well. Now notice the second claim of Jesus. Jesus also makes a second amazing claim. He tells us that Jesus is equal to God with the identical nature of God. Notice with me the first part of verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? And this is so important, he repeats it in verse 11. Believe me, he says, that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Do you know this is one of the strongest ways for Jesus to affirm His full nature and equality with God. 
What Jesus is saying is that the Father and Son mutually indwell one another, and thus they have complete unity. So Jesus is telling us that both Father and Son have the same attributes, the same essence, they have the same power, and they are equal in every way. Now please connect these two claims together. This is why Jesus is the only one who can fully show us what God is like so we can know him. It is because Jesus is the only one who is like God in every way and became man to show us what God is like. One of the great students of the Gospel of John was a professor at Wheaton College by the name of Merrill Tenney. He wrote a classic book on John's gospel. And listen to what he says. His his words are, are so insightful. He says, No material image or likeness can adequately depict God. Only a person can give knowledge of him, since personality cannot be represented by an impersonal object. And so only Jesus, because he fully has the nature of God and is equal to God, can be the full and supreme and final revelation of God. Now this is why Jesus is so saddened by Philip's question in verse 9. Don't you see the sadness in him? Philip, have I been so long with you? And you still do not know me. Clearly, the disciples did not fully get it. They didn't realize, after all that they had gone through, three and a half years of ministry, that if you want to understand God, the Father, you have to look at God, the Son. They clearly did not grasp the Trinity. By the way, who could expect them to grasp it? It was brand new revelation. It had never been conceived of before. By the way, just so you will know, I don't fully understand the Trinity either. I believe it. I believe it. It is not illogical or irrational that three persons could subsist together in one essence, perfectly united, so that they are not mixed or changed, but all are fully possessing of the Godhead equally at the same time. That is not illogical or irrational, but I must confess to you today, it is a mystery that goes far beyond our ability to understand. Last week I told you there was something that I had taught before that I was wrong about. Now this week I'm telling you that something in the Bible I don't fully understand. Can anybody tell me what's gotten into me these last two weeks? Aren't you grateful for the patience of Jesus with the disciples? Aren't you grateful? He had gone over this with him over and over again. And 
and they still weren't getting it. He's so patient with them. You think he'll be patient with us? Yes, he will. Yes, he will. Several weeks ago, I had a wonderful conversation with a very perceptive young person here at Bethel. We have some incredible young people here in this church. And one of the things that this young lady wanted to talk to me about was assurance, how she could be assured. And she asked a very, very perceptive question. She said, how can you believe in what you cannot see? And I thought to myself, what a wonderful thing for a young teenager to be wrestling with. The disciples saw it. They were with Jesus. They heard him. But we haven't. And how can we be sure that what's on the screen, that Jesus is the supreme revelation of God, and he is equal to God with the identical nature How can we be sure this is true? Did you notice Jesus gives us two proofs? How wonderful is the teaching of Jesus? Let's look at him. Proof number one, Jesus tells us what he speaks, God speaks. Look back at verse 10. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does his works. Now please notice what Jesus is not saying. This does not mean that the Father tells Jesus what to say, and then he says it. This is far deeper. Because the Father and the Son have the same mind, they have the same thoughts and therefore the same words. Therefore, what Jesus means here is that when he speaks, God the Father speaks simultaneously with him the mutual indwelling of the Father in the Son and the Son in the Father means both are speaking exactly the same words at the very same time. This is why Jesus never had to say, Thus saith the Lord. When Isaiah would speak, he would say, Thus saith the Lord. When Jeremiah would preach, he would say, Thus saith the Lord. When Paul would give his letters, he would say, Let everyone know that what I'm writing is not from me, but from the Lord. But Jesus could speak with his own authority because he was speaking simultaneously with the very authority of the Father who mutually indwelt him as Father indwelling Son and Son indwelling Father. Recently, there was a young man by the name of Alex Malarkey. He recanted his story about going to heaven and coming back to tell about it. You might remember that 
he had authored a very famous book entitled The Boy Who Came Back from Heaven, A True Story. Now 16, he says that it didn't happen. And in a letter that he wrote to Christian publishers, he called on them to stop selling these stories and making huge profits. The letter that he wrote was addressed to Lifeway Christian publishers and other sellers, buyers, and marketers of heaven tourism. Let me share with you what he said because it is so relevant to what Jesus is saying to us today. Listen to his words now, 10 years after writing this best-selling book and seeking to get it stopped. Listen to what he says. I did not die. I did not go to heaven. I said I went to heaven because I thought it would get me attention. When I made the claims that I did, I had never read the Bible. People have profited from lies and continue to. They should read the Bible, which is enough. The Bible is the only source of truth. Anything written by man cannot be infallible. I want the whole world to know the Bible is sufficient. Now the reason this is true is because only Jesus speaks with the authority of God. Only He is infallible. This is why the Bible speaks to people with such power and effectiveness that it changes their lives. You remember they sent the guards to arrest Jesus and they came back and they didn't arrest him. And they said to them, well, why didn't you arrest them? And remember what they said, John seven forty six. no one ever spoke like this man. Many of the disciples were, were leaving Jesus and he turns to the twelve and he says, are you going to leave me? And Peter says to him, we cannot leave you. You have the words of eternal life. And then remember in John 4, Jesus meets this woman at the well and he tells her everything about her life and she goes home to her Samaritan village and she says, could this be the Messiah? Turn with me for just a moment back to what her village friends said in chapter 4, verse 41 and 42. Listen to what they said. It is the power of the authority of the truth of the word that came because of Jesus' unique relationship to God. Look at verse 41. And many more believed because of his word. And notice what they said. They said to the woman, it is no longer because of what you said that we believe, for we have heard for ourselves, and we know that this is indeed the Savior of the world. The words of Jesus Christ found in the Bible ring with authenticity and power because they come directly from God. That's proof number one. Notice proof number two. 
Jesus' miracles are God's miracles. Look again at verse 11. And notice the second proof that Jesus brings. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or else believe on account of the works, the miracles that I do. Now in the Gospel of John, Jesus' miracles are called signs or signposts. The sign points away from itself to something else. So the miracles of Jesus were intended to teach who he was and what it was that he had come to do. No one did the kinds of miracles that Jesus did, the number of miracles, or no one had the power and the extent of the miracles they did when Jesus did them. Elijah could feed a hundred people with one lunch. But Jesus fed 5,000 with one lunch. Now let's just for a moment trace one miracle quickly. Opening of blind eyes. In all of recorded history until Jesus came, there is not one instance of anyone having their eyes opened that was blind. Not once in the Old Testament. The rabbi said, so difficult was it to open the eyes of a blind person that only God could do it. In fact, go back with me to Psalm 146, and I want you to notice what the Old Testament categorically says only God can do. Psalm 146, and notice verse 8. And look at what it says. Psalm 146, verse 8. The Lord opens the eyes of the blind. God alone is able to do this. Now let's move ahead to the prophecy of Isaiah, chapter 42. And in Isaiah 42, we have a very clear prophecy of the coming of the future Messiah. He'll be anointed by the Spirit of God, and he will minister in the name of the Lord. Now notice what the prophet Isaiah says about the coming Messiah. Look with me at verse 1. Behold my servant whom I am uphold, my chosen in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. Now drop down to verse 6 and notice one of the things the Lord says he will do through this servant. I am the Lord, says Jehovah. I have called you, my servant, the future Messiah, in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind. Now we turn to the New Testament. We find that one of Jesus' most common miracles that no one had ever done before was opening blind eyes. He did this on a regular basis. But turn back to John 9 for a moment and notice the most stupendous time a man who had been born congenitally blind from his birth who had never seen at all anything 
And now notice his testimony after his eyes are opened and the Pharisees refuse to believe. Notice what he says in verse 32. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, You were born in utter sin, and you would teach us, and they threw him out. Jesus heard that they had cast him out of the synagogue, and having found him, he said, Do you believe in the Son of Man? He answered, And who is he, sir, that I may believe in him? Jesus said to him, You have seen him. There's our word seen three times. Spiritual insight, experience. And it is he who is speaking to you. He said, Lord, I believe. And he worshipped him. Think of his words again. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind if this man were not from God. He could do nothing. And Jesus says, you want to know I'm the full revelation of God? I have an identical nature with God and therefore equal to Him? Here's how you know. When I speak, God speaks simultaneously with me. You can trust what I'm saying. And my miracles, they are nothing less than God's miracles. One of my old professors, Kenneth Gangle, said one day he was listening to a sermon on what is God like. Listen to what Dr. Gangle said. What is God like? I once heard a sermon on this topic. The pastor talked on and on about God being like flowers, sunsets, the cry of a newborn baby, the beauty of a clear blue sky. Certainly all those are part of God's natural revelation and therefore reflect Him. But He never got to the bottom line. God is like Jesus Christ. That is the bottom line. And how do we know that? Because only Jesus spoke as God speaks. And only Jesus did what God does. A young teenager who is not in this service, maybe in the next service. That's why you can believe what you cannot see. 
That's why you can have assurance of where you're going, of who you have believed in, and of why He will never fail you. What a wonderful encouragement. Let's bow our hearts together, shall we? Father, some of these things are so extraordinary, we can hardly take them in. Oh God, sometimes as I see the beauty of Jesus Christ and the reality of who He is and what He's done, I'm struck with awe wonder and amazement even in my own study. The room seems to be filled with the very glory of God as I see the face of God in the person of Jesus Christ. And I am led once again to say this is my Savior. This is my Lord. This is the one I have banked everything upon. This is the one I have trusted, yea, from my very youth. This is the one in the deepest trials of my life that I have clung to for reassurance. Lord Jesus, today, thank you. Thank you that you are who you said you are. You have promised, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. And in the deepest times of our discouragement, we can say, I will never, never, never give in. Be it large or small, be it big or petty. But I will trust him. We love you, Lord, today. I pray for anyone in the sound of my voice who is unsure of where they stand with Jesus Christ. I pray today that they will come to Him. I pray, Father, for people who are struggling, who somehow feel there are no answers, that we cannot be sure. I pray today that they will know there are resounding answers. And they are found in Jesus Christ. And I pray today that the one walking on the edge of doubt will stand strong on the wall of faith. We love you today, Lord. Thank you for revealing yourself to us in Jesus Christ our Lord. It's in his name that we pray. In all God's people said together, I'd like to conclude today with a song that